Uh, as we move into uh, our time in the Word, Scriptura alone, or Sola Scriptura, we're in the book of Exodus. And so you can turn there, if you'd like, to Exodus chapter 13. And I'm going to read parts of 13, and then all of, most of all of 14, and then a little bit of 15. And then we'll take a look at it. Exodus chapter 13. We will start in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And then I'm going to jump down to chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth, don't judge me, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. FYI, no, it is not what they said. They said, free us. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. You should pay attention when God tells you not to pray, but to move. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Israel, or the host of Egypt, and the host of Israel. 
And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and a cloud looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course until the morning, or when, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, saying, uh, for he has, sorry, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Let's pray for God to open up his word to us this morning. Jesus, we need your kind and good spirit to come into us in fresh ways that we may hear from you, see you, know you, believe you, love you, and obey you. Jesus, without your spirit, we have no hope. We trust that you will send him this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, who's seen the Prince of Egypt back in the day when it was, that was, that was cool to watch animated films like that? Who has never seen it? Okay. Who doesn't know the story of the Red Sea, I don't want you to put up your hand. It's a popular enough story that I'm not sure we have to spend a lot of time explaining that, yes, this happened. We do believe that as Christians, um, even though it does seem at times difficult. And so everything I will say will assume that. But one of the things that often happens is, particularly I noticed when I watched that movie, is that the going through the Red Sea was the climax of the story. It was the high point of the story and everything else is kind of boring because it's about the tabernacle and about the wilderness and about eating bread and desert and 
it, it goes downhill, but actually from the biblical sense, it hasn't even started going yet until now. Now is when the real action will start. And so uh, what, what sometimes happens though is we look at texts like this and we assume that we are the good, the good guy in the story, right? Do you do that? Watch, watch the superhero, I'm like the good person. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to assume you're not the good person in the story, but you're actually, you're disobedient Israel, you're disobedient Egypt in the story, and instead of you just getting the story, I want the story to get in you, because that's really what needs to happen here. What needs to happen is that not we know the story, but that the story goes inside of us and we realize, actually, we're just like Israel in so many ways, aren't we? If, if you just take a moment to imagine yourself as Israel and as not the good sides of Israel, but just like Israel, I think you'll have something to learn here this morning. And so will whoever is there. But I want to I, I divide our morning like this. I, I want to say, first of all, what Israel was saved from and therefore translate it what, what we are saved from. And then I want to talk about what Israel was saved for, and then I want to translate that for us and talk about what we are saved for. And lastly, I want to talk about uh, what, who Israel was saved by, and then I want to talk about who we are saved by. So first of all, what Israel was saved from? Well, essentially, if I do a little overview here, there's been 400 years of slavery. Well, not quite 400 years of slavery per se, but 400 years underneath uh, basically totalitarian rule of another country. They're, they're living within the guidelines of people that tell them what to do, what to build. So this is hard for us to get into, but I, I know this is stepping on some toes here, but imagine for a second that you have been under COVID restrictions for 400 years. Did I hit any nerves? Tell me how you feel about that. You're like, I don't even know if I could do 400 days. 400 years of someone telling you what to do, where, when, how, telling you we should follow these rules, we shouldn't. Can you imagine what you would feel like? I'm not sure it matters anymore what side of the aisle you're on in that. I'm sure you would be like, can we just go somewhere where I can make up my own rules for once? Where I don't have someone looking over my shoulder? So this is why I made a joke about Israel who just gets cornered and suddenly comes up with this, like it sounds like a kid in a candy store who's been caught red-handed. Remember, like, remember Moses when we said to you that it was better in Egypt? Uh, let's review here, Israel. No, you didn't. You said you wanted out of here. You were saved so fast, the bread didn't even have time to rise. And then God was like, hey, that would make a great festival for you. So every year you remember a festival of bread not rising. It leads into the Passover that helps you remember that it was me saying, if you sacrifice a lamb and someone else will cover your household and prevent you from experience what you should have, which was death. Following this Passover, Israel leaves Egypt so abruptly, Pharaoh is a little bit taken off guard. 
I mean, it, did, it does say in earlier chapters that Pharaoh was like, or Moses says to Pharaoh, hey, you know, we want to go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we can serve. Now, some of you didn't know that's actually what it says. You remember the part of let my people go, but you don't remember the part that Moses says, let my people go that they may serve God in the wilderness. There was already a purpose there. But they, they leave so abruptly, Pharaoh thinks they're being defiant. Like, oh, I, I didn't know that they meant three days. They just kept on going after the third day, didn't they? And they take a journey that, by the way, some of you don't know. I, I made this joke, but he's not here anymore, so the joke's not nearly as funny. But I don't have a map. I'm not nerdy like Corey Payne who will come and talk about the tabernacle and give you a map. See, it's not funny because he's not here. But he said to me after, challenge accepted. You will have a map on that Sunday. Anyways, um, if you follow the route, what's amazing about that route is that we know now the route would only take two weeks to travel. That's why in the beginning uh, of what I read in chapter 17, Uh, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Yeah, that's an understatement. 40 years, two weeks. Like, can you imagine if you said, I'm going to Edmonton, I'll see you in 2024. (laughs) Why why, why is it taking so long? Uh, Well, God had some stuff that he wanted to do on the way. Yeah, I know, but that's an awful long time. 40 years. 40 years. Why did God do that? I'll tell you why God did that. Because he wanted to do something in Israel that couldn't be done in a fast way. He wanted to take them on a journey that required more faith, not less faith. Now, how many of you want to respond to God exactly like that when you feel cornered in a place where you have to experience more faith or you have to grow in your faith. So let me put it to you this way. How many of you would choose the long, drawn-out trip to Edmonton where God (coughs) develops your faith in a grueling way or three hours and I get there and do what I want to do? How many of you choose that one? Yeah, all of us, right? You see, we are Israel. If if it's up to us, we choose the easy route. Yes, we have a choice. The problem is we always choose the wrong thing, don't we? We have a problem in our hearts that doesn't want to experience faith. I remember as, as a young teenager having to trust the person who is lowering me down the cliff to repel. And I remember just going, this is, this is a disaster. And he was like, you won't fall. And I'm like, yeah, says you. You're up there. I'm here like leaning about as unnaturally as possible over this cliff. And if you're incorrect, I fall to my death. Yeah, I don't like this. It's not comfortable. I remember that going, I know it takes faith. I don't want to have faith. I want to have a flat piece of ground right now because I'm just like Israel. Because there was something God wanted to do in Israel 
And this is what's happening with all of our faith journeys. He doesn't just want to work through you. He wants to work in you. You know, there's a a great book uh, that a friend of mine gave to me by Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson. And there was a comment on this story. It's actually tracing the book of Exodus all the way through Scripture, showing how the story of the Exodus is really mimicked and repeated throughout many books of the Bible, that once you know that story, you will begin to see it. And they said something, and it was in brackets, almost like as an aside, but it was so powerful, I want to share it with you. And leading up to that, I want to say what God did was basically put Israel against a large body of water and and a superpower army. Like, that's not a rock in a hard place. That's like a rock in a rock. And they said, you know, it's, it's really remarkable that there, there is never a story in the Bible about a bridge. Never. The bridges never show up in the story of the Bible. And yet there's a lot of stories of people coming to bodies of water that they can't cross by themselves. This is the first one, really. Because the thing is, God doesn't want to build a bridge for us to go over our suffering. He wants us to go through so he can develop our faith. God does not want to take us past our suffering. He wants to go with us through our suffering. He wants to do exactly spiritually that we see physically in the text. He wants us to walk on the dry ground, trusting that he's the one who's able to hold the walls of water that that defy gravity so that we can believe in the God of the book of Exodus, so that we can have that experience for ourselves. How many of you have prayed, get me out of this suffering? Get me out of this. How many do not like praying? Get me through this, but keep me in it. I don't want that. Some of you know my story. In the past two months, two months ago, I believe it was Thursday, my youngest brother died of cancer. It's been a very, very, very painful experience for me. And yet, I have already seen God do some amazing things through this. But let me confess to you, I never once prayed for God to take him until, really, it was way too late. I wanted God to get me over the water. I did not want him to get me through it. In fact, I remember saying to God, I know you can do something through this. That's what I'm actually afraid of. I'm afraid what you've asked me to go through is too painful for me. And I can't do it. And he said, and he says, I think I know how to hold back the water. Don't you think I know how to develop your faith through this painful experience, Trev? Don't you think I know? You're going to have to trust me. And so despite all my pain, guess what? My faith has grown. Because just like we would see at the very end of chapter 15, 
The point was for God to help Israel to see themselves how much they didn't trust and how good God actually was. You see, God wants to save us from, from ourselves. In, in, in this case, he's saving Israel from slavery, but in our case, he's saving us from us. That's those same writers that I mentioned earlier, they talk about Exodus chapter 4 through 15 as being the story of the battle of the gods. But it's not really much of a battle because God doesn't really have to battle that much. They, they, they are defeated very quickly. But this, this battle of the gods is actually something that happens in our hearts. Because there is a God after your heart. Some of you, there are multiple gods after your heart. What are those gods? I don't know, actually. I just know that they're there. Because I have them too. And those gods are sometimes comfort. That I will pursue that at all costs. And this is what it means to be enslaved by something. This is why this, this word worship ends up being the word serve in the book of Exodus because whatever you worship, you serve. Whatever you are enslaved to, you serve. I once had someone explain to me what being an alcoholic was like and he said, it's like you have a boss that tells you what to do, where to go, how to spend your money, who to hang out with, when to get up, when to go to bed. This is slavery, it's slavery. And some of us are enslaved in our sin and we want freedom so badly. But friends, the way out of slavery is through trust in God. Not technique. Not strong will. In some ways, it's sitting passively and watching God work actively. You see, some of us, we want freedom. We just don't want freedom God's way. We are enslaved. We want freedom from our sin. We just want freedom to get back to our own mission again. You ever felt like that? God, can you free me from the sin so I can get back to the mission that I'm on? You see, God doesn't do that. God doesn't free his people so that they can run around in the desert and do whatever they want. He frees people for a very specific purpose, and that's what we want to talk about next, what they're saved for. The first thing that we find that they're saved for is God's glory. And we too are saved for God's glory, period. We're not saved for God's glory and whatever we want to do. We are saved for God's glory, what does that word glory actually mean? Well, we don't use it very well. We don't use it very often, but it essentially means weight or worth. You know, you know what it means because you know how it feels. Have you ever met someone important? No? I'm the only one that's met someone important. Okay. Some of you are still waking up. I get it. Yeah. Eh, when I met them, they weren't so important anymore. Have you ever met someone who you thought was important and then you found yourself short of breath and you said stupid things and you walked away and you said, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. Yeah. So you should 
follow in my wise footsteps, and that is you should develop a plan before you meet that famous person and decide what you're going to say so you don't look so foolish when you meet them because there's something about being in the, in the presence of someone who you think's value is far greater than you and far more worth than you. There's something about that that makes you short of breath, makes you say stupid things. Like, I'm not going to tell you the stupid things that I've said in the presence of people that I thought had worth, great worth, or at least more worth than me. That's what glory means. Glory has to do with weight. That's why when Isaiah met with God in the temple, and we'll, we'll, you find that story in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, he has, he has no other option but just to shut his mouth and fall to his knees. We are made for God's glory. And we see actually in this text that there are two different ways that God will get his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. Because he will get his glory. That's actually what the text says. Whether you choose to give him glory or not is not the question. He will get glory from you. You will acknowledge God's worth at some point in your life. The question is, do you want to do it now or do you want to do it in eternity where you will do it anyways but very unwillingly? And so the two ways we see in the text is mirrored in Egypt and Israel. With Egypt, they see God's power. But here's how we differentiate between the two. And a very famous theologian, Jonathan Edwards, way back in the 1800s, wrote this about God's glory. That it was the chief end of the, of the world, the purpose of the world, number one. So that is the purpose. But two, he said it happens in two ways. It happens when you see it, and it happens when you see it and you love it. You can, you can give God glory by seeing his power, but not enjoying it. Or you can give God glory by seeing God's glory and loving it. That differentiates who is on Jesus' side and who is not. Friends, some of you actually need to make that transition in your life. You recognize that God is powerful. You recognize that Jesus is a savior, but you don't love it. You don't love him. It's a concept for you. Some of us, we don't love God's power at all in our life. We love what it accomplishes for us. But you see, God wanted Israel to make this transition from just knowing about his power like Egypt to loving his power. That's why actually the pinnacle of the text, the highlight is the song, which I didn't read a lot of, but I will talk about. But it's a song. It's a song that they loved to sing. You see in Exodus chapter 14, verse 17, it says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host. Not I want to get glory, or I'd like to. I will get glory over Pharaoh. They will recognize my weight and my worth. They just won't love him. Jesus actually, or, or sorry, James 
The brother of Jesus said something like this, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's great. You believe that God is who he says he is. That's awesome. But even the demons believe that and shudder. He's like, you believe that God exists? Good for you. Guess who also believes that? Demons. They don't love God. There's something else that needs to go on between just recognizing that God has great worth and value, and that is that he wants a relationship. He does not simply want to gain glory over you in his life. He can do that no matter what. What he wants is to gain glory because you love him and you desire him. And even when you don't love him and desire him the way that you want to, you desire to desire him. You know, let me encourage some of you. I've heard a lot that, you know, God's not really working in my life. I'm just not where I should be. I just want to, I, I just want to know him more. I said, that is actually evidence of God at work in your life. You know what's not evidence of God working in your life? is when you're totally ignorant of him and you have no desire for him at all. That should scare us. But when you recognize, oh, I am so unworthy of this. I can't believe God would, would, would choose to show his love to me. I don't know what I, would ever, I ever did to deserve this. I don't think I did anything. That is active Holy Spirit work in your life. That is God starting to show, this is what I'm after. I'm not after the people who think they know how to do good stuff for me. I'm not after people who have a perfect track record. I'm after people who know they can't live without me. Friends, do you want to want God? Do you know your desire for God is weak? Do you know you need to be lit with a deeper fire? You can. You can want that. And some of you do want that. Let me encourage you. That's what God is after here. We see that all throughout the text. What, what we see is Israel is recognizing that the God that we see that split the sea is becoming personal. That's why in, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Now, let me make a comment here. That actually, I, I don't know Hebrew. I read this from people way smarter than me but they, they say it's an imperfect way of saying this, which essentially means it should read something like this. Moses and the people of Israel sang and kept on singing and are singing to this day this song. Okay, does that make sense? They were always singing this song. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into sea. They saw that, but then listen, the Lord is my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My father's God and I will praise him. He's not just the God of the past. He was the God of the past. He is the God of now and he will be the God of the future. That is the description of the name Yahweh. 
It means I was, I am, and I will be. It's a hard concept to understand. And that God who described himself like that became their God. So it wasn't Moses' God, wasn't Abraham's God, wasn't Jacob's God. It was their God. Moses was only a mediator, but they owned this relationship. And some of us need to remember this, particularly if we're raising families. That the most important part of raising a family that loves God is helping our children to understand that the relationship needs to be their own, that it is far less important that they obey us and our rules than it is that they have an encounter with the holy, awesome God who was, is, and will be. I'm not telling you how to parent as much as I'm saying, do whatever it takes to help them get there. Worry about that. This is what's happening in the taxes. There's this transition from my father's God. Moses had this encounter. That's why in the beginning of Exodus, you see the burning bush. And then what do you see in this text? You see a pillar of fire. So the burning bush has literally become the pillar of fire. Moses' experience has become their experience. God was speaking to Moses. God is speaking to me. And in a culture where individuality doesn't matter at all, it is weird to see this in the text. My God? My salvation? Shouldn't it say our? You see, there's something uniquely personal about this God who doesn't just want to show you his white, hot holiness and awesomeness. He wants you to love him. He wants you to see that he loves you. Because thirdly, he wants you to worship. And he wants this to move to worship. And the reason why is that he made you this way. He made you to worship something. You actually don't have a choice in this. In the New Testament, Jesus kind of describes this when he says, uh, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. He didn't say you should not. He said you cannot. He said you, you, you'll have one ultimate master. If your ultimate master is money, then your ultimate master cannot be God, cannot be Jesus. You have to choose. What you don't get a choice in is that you worship something. We've talked about this often at Mission Hill. There is one thing in your life that is more ultimate than anything else. I don't know what that is. But this text is persuading us God is the best option. God wants our worship. Worship is when I want to differentiate this. Uh, I'm a little bit of um, the word police. I don't know if you know this about myself, but I, I do hold a badge inside of my blazer here, word police. And I should have pulled it out when, when Bill said we went to church. I wanted to say, Bill, well, we've been over this. You can't go to church. You are the church. 
matters. And I think for us, worship is something we think that happens on Sunday morning, but maybe even worse, it's something that only happens when we start singing and when we end singing. But I want to say that's not how the Bible describes worship at all. Worship is something that happens in our hearts. And so here are various ways you can worship on Sunday morning. You can worship when you meet someone that you haven't seen in a while and you hear a story about how good God was in their life this past week and you say, man, God is so good. You just worshiped. You just say God is great. You can worship not when you sing, but when you hear someone else sing. Last week I played the drums and I did not sing and That's good because the beat stayed on time because of that, for the most part. You don't want me singing while I'm playing the drums. It won't work out very well. So you would think that I wouldn't be able to worship, but that's not true. We sang a song that meant so much to me. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. And while sitting at the drums, not singing, I worshiped. And then I worshiped Monday afternoon as I hummed that song all afternoon. And then I worshiped as my mom said, that was one of my favorite hymns. It's possible to worship God all the time, not simply Sunday mornings. Although I do hope that while we sing, you worship. But that's because as you sing, as you hear, if you're not a singer, you go, yes, I want that. I'm not there yet, but I want it. Blessed assurance. Jesus, please give me assurance. You're worshiping. And this is where God wants us because he understands that the best thing for us is to recognize his greatness. That's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for him. It's the best thing for us but I don't think we're ever going to get moved by this. I don't think we're ever going to love God until we really see him for who he is. And that's where I see this text actually start to really blossom. And that's found all throughout the text. Sometimes you see this all caps, Lord, you see that in your scripture. Some of you know what this means. Others of you don't. The all caps, Lord, is not uh, there. It's not a spelling mistake. It's actually what's called, I have to look up the name here, it's a tetragrammaton. Corey said to me after the service, you called me a nerd for a map and then you used tetragrammaton? <laughs> Meaning, the original writers of the text revered God's name so great they didn't even spell it in full, they used Four letters, Y-H-W-H, instead of the full word for Yahweh. And it became the all caps Lord. It shows up 6,800 times in scripture. Whenever you see that word Lord, you can actually read Yahweh. But remember, when they said Yahweh, the reason why they did that is they revered the name of God so greatly, they were like, if we spell it wrong, we could possibly blaspheme. So let's just make up an acronym so we don't blaspheme the holy name of God. Because they understood who he was. 
What's amazing about that is that Jesus comes on the scene and in John 8, 57, as he's telling a story, he casually says to his disciples and those hearing, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning he was saying, you know that Yahweh that you've heard so much about? You know that Yahweh who in creation split apart the seas and created dry land? You know that Yahweh who in Exodus split the seas and created dry land? You know the Yahweh who put people in exile and then brought them back, who built the temple, who inhabited in the temple? You know that Yahweh? I'm that Yahweh. It's the reason why they picked up stones to stone him because they said, he's blaspheming. And that leaves us with only two options. He was either blaspheming or he's God. So every time you think of Jesus, he is the God we're talking about in Exodus. He's the God of all holiness. He's the God who has the right hand of glorious and power. He's the, the God who shatters the enemy Verse 8, 15, 8. He's the God who has the greatness of majesty that overthrows our adversaries and consumes them like stubble. Of this, we can say he spiritually does this. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood in the heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, dire, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast people, or you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have purchased them. You see, the same God who did all this is the same God who says, I will sit and I will sacrifice myself so that I can win my people back. So this is the amazing, this is why we describe Jesus as both God, fully God, fully man. Because first of all, Jesus obeyed in every way that Israel was supposed to obey. He followed in every way that Israel and you and I have failed he did everything that we were supposed to do, but then he's also the God who created us at the same time. It's, it's mind-bending. But Jesus, as Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the man of war. He is greatness and majesty. He is glorious in power. He is unmatched in strength. He is not simply a pillar of fire to light us. He is the light, as he says. So in every way, 
Jesus is the fulfillment. And I love what this says. The Lord has become my salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus frees us from the sin that enslaves us. Some of us are so caught in our sin that we can't even see straight. We're enslaved to all the identities we're trying to build for ourselves and our work and our family relationships. We're addicted to pornography. We're addicted to identity. We're addicted to uh, material things. We're addicted to images. We're addicted to power. We're addicted to control. We're addicted to comfort and pleasure. We're chained up. We're enslaved by these things. And Jesus says, I want to free you for my glory. But you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to do it my way. You're going to have to not think you know the best route for this. You're going to have to follow and trust me at my word. But friends, are you hungry? Are you hungry for Jesus to free you from this? Are you hungry to know this God in great detail? Are you hungry to be known by him? Are you hungry to experience his holiness and awesomeness? Would you at least like to know God like that, where you're just awestruck by him and you worship during the day outside of a Sunday service? You can. You can. You can know that God through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is that God and he provided a relationship for us. And the ancients used to have a celebration called the Passover. And you can take out your elements now as we celebrate them together. The ancient celebration was a Passover. Yeah, if you don't have them, go back and grab the elements. And the Passover was actually a celebration that reminded this great event in Exodus But when Jesus came on the scene, he did not wipe away the Passover as much as he fulfilled. And he said, no longer will you look back on a physical lamb. You will look at me, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there's a new meal in play here. And although when we take it, it seems like this doesn't seem like enough to satisfy us for the rest of even the morning, right? There's a hunger that goes along, and I think that's actually a symbol that's helpful for us this morning because as we take it together, we should be reminded that we don't need just grace for today. We need it for this afternoon. We need it for this evening. We need it for tomorrow morning. We need it for our week. We need it for the fight we're going to have with our kids or our spouse later on today. We need the grace of Jesus Christ more than we have it. And so if that is you, that's what I hope that we would pray together as we take these symbols. First of all, the symbol that's represented in the bread, which represents the physical body of Jesus Christ, that God was not content simply to stay isolated from us and watch the exodus go on. He wanted to come and be with his people. That's what this represents. This little wafer here represents the physical body of Jesus, the the Yahweh God that has come to us.
to be with us. Let's take together. But in order to do that, in order to come to us, he just didn't live as an example, friends, for us to follow. He did everything that we were supposed to do, and he took everything that we had done wrongly, and he paid for it. He purchased. And there was a price tag on his purchase. He wanted you to display glory for him, but there was a purchase price for him. And you know what that purchase price was? His blood. He bled on a cross, humiliated, naked, in shame, so that you and I could walk freely displaying God's glory without shame, without guilt. Let's remember that as we partake together. And let me pray for our hunger. Jesus, we are thankful for this reminder this morning, but we know that's not enough. We know that we will need grace again. And so Jesus, for those of us who deeply hunger to see you work in our lives, would you fulfill that? Would you fulfill us with the grace we need, Jesus, and the courage to ask for the grace when we need it? We love you, Jesus, and we want to love you more. We're asking for this in your awesome and holy name. Amen.